Welcome back to another episode of The Daily Disruptor. My name is Adam Burnett, your host, and with me as always, Mr. Ephraim Hoffman, CEO and founder of Running Alpha. And today we are going to be revisiting some of the topics that we've discussed previously. First up on the list will be cryptocurrencies and their volatility, how you can hedge your bets when it comes to market strategy, what you should have in your portfolio. We also posed the question, does the Fed know what they're doing? And lastly, we'll talk about any possible negative consequences when it comes to the oil prices being so low and, and how that can influence the green energy revolution. Enjoy. So yeah, this week, some blockchain events happening for sure. And as we talked about prior, just want to just revisit how people could take advantage of uh, trying to hedge their portfolio against uh, any kind of uh, volatility that could set in in the near term. Basically, um, since a number of episodes back when we were right near the low, we were calling for this massive rally that was going to take place. And you know what, it's, it's taken place and people are, some people are sitting with some pretty good profits. Some people are kind of just late entering and they're kind of maybe getting a little nervous thinking about, well, should I take profit or not? Knowing that, you know, the old saying, uh, sell in May, go away and uh, come back when, you know, all the traders are back after the summer. I think this year's going to be a little bit different. It would make sense that given the big run-up that we had, that at some point in the middle, towards the end of this month, we should see some volatility creeping back into the market. It's important to realize that before a volatility episode happens, you tend to get really, really sharp spikes uh, to the upside just before the turn to get everybody in. So, you know, you really want to uh, hold the strongest equities because uh, in the event that there is a down move and you are an investor, you want to stick with the, the good equities and then also have some protection that if the market was to go down, that you would actually get the benefit of either preserving some capital and even making some money on a push downward. So usually what I do when I try to identify um, a good hedge, I try to look for when the strong links in the system are showing an area where they could weaken as an average. There's always going to be good stocks in an area that I'm always interested in. In the past number of episodes, I've talked about a number of different areas that I really, really like. But as an average, for most people that are looking at like the S&P or broad indices, you really want to, uh, want to focus on, okay, before I really try to initiate a hedge position, uh, whether it's, you know, I mean, sophisticated hedge funds will use option strategies. That's something I certainly would uh, tell uh, the average investor to stay far away from. And uh, I would, you know, suggest some very simple strategies like, you know, small positions in uh, inverse traded funds to complement a long portfolio that you're in for the long term, just so that when volatility comes in, you kind of dampen. The pullback gives you a little more cash to allocate into the market when we see that better times uh, are coming. And there are better times coming for sure. Yeah. So first look for uh, when the strong links are going to start to weaken or at least not be as strong when there could be a turn. And then once you've identified that, then seek out 
the weakest link and, and, and basically go long the ETF that is inversely tracking the index. And this way, when the market starts being volatile and correcting a bit back to the downside, you're going to be able to take advantage of that short-term volatility and capture some of the, the downside, turn it into profit and uh, offset some of the, uh, the short-term moves against you in the, in the strong links that you're in. So as I talked about in some of the prior episodes, weak link that I was looking at is Canada. Canada, basically, in an event that volatility does creep into the market in this uh, sometime from mid-May to the June period, if it does, Canada should be one of the areas that would be hurt substantially. And the thing is, it's also a long-term kind of uh, situation. So it's something that would underperform on the upside after we get this short-term pullback. And then the states will continue outperforming. And then each time it takes a step up, Canada will kind of not take the same type of step. And when it decides to turn back down again, Canada will go down faster and stay down harder. I mean, Canada is e-liquid market in, in general relative to the United States and a lot of equities. There are some big cap ones, but there's not many. So sometimes it feels as if the rebounds are pretty sharp in Canada. But the question is, how well do they sustain themselves? And are they in an, a diversified enough set of industries you know, to really um, preserve your capital during uh, the intermediate term? And I, I still say that technology, biotechnology are the, uh, the places to, uh, to focus on, as well as hard assets like gold and silver when we're going through a period of uh, monetary policy that wants to uh, basically pour money into the system. So yeah, that's kind of the point. I just like to touch on one other thing before I get into Canada, because I did talk about this prior and had to do with, and a lot of people were asking me this, this question this week. So people were asking, why is it that the uh, stock market is going up with such a terrible thing taking place, right? And what is the motivation of the Federal Reserve to pour that much money into the system? Because there's some people saying, oh, if you automatically pour all that money into the system, uh, and we touched on this in a prior episode, I think it's important to reiterate on it. You pour all that money in, you're just gonna create massive inflation across the board immediately, go long gold, go long this, it's like, you know, you could be right about what you're going long in and be completely wrong about why. And I just think some people uh, are missing one of the links in, in, in the system. And the first link is this, that the Federal Reserve, even though some people think they're stupid, they're actually, there are some people that are actually quite smart in there and they do those things for a number of reasons. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt right here. Okay, and let's look at it from the outside perspective. They darn well know how bad this situation is and how bad it could get. So they want to basically be proactive, even though many times in history they're not. But in this case, you could argue and say, okay, they're proactive. They know that this is going to be a real problem and it's going to really whack the market. It's going to really 
impact the economy. And a lot of like the people like, you know, that are in the economy also have 401ks that basically they're living off of them. Some people, some people are living off these 401ks because they've already basically like leveraged a lot of their financial assets and that's all that's left. And the point is, even though the stock market is not supposed to equal the economy, in some cases, people's decisions are made on that value because they could actually service loans. Like they could actually get loans because a bank or some other third party, you know, credit institution will actually give them additional credit lines because of the value of their portfolios. So if those portfolios like get decimated, uh, it could really shrink the ability for people to purchase goods that would keep the economy going. So the economy is very much tied to the stock market when you're at an extreme in a cycle where the debt load is so uh, intense that people are relying on, on the market, which could partly be why the president keeps on talking about the stock market. Some people say, well, it's just for the rich and he's just enriching the rich people. But you could also argue and say, hey, there's a massive middle class that is shrinking, but yet there's still a middle class. And there's even some people that aren't in the middle class that are, are investing in stocks as the only way out. And they're just trying their way there. And the point is, if you take that last piece of leverage that they have in order to provide some means of spending, uh, then that could really immediately cause serious problems. The Fed is aware of that. And whether or not they acted by putting all that money in for that specific purpose, the reality is it does have an effect on helping that situation. So some of that money, it didn't just go into just one area of, of the economy. It actually went into buying all kinds of asset classes in order to prop up and preserve the, the value of the equity market. When you pump that kind of money into a system, that's just a lot of, uh, that's a heck of a lot of demand. And as big as markets are, it's all about supply and demand and that would push prices up. Now, you can't sustain it forever by just relying on the Fed to pump it up. But there's another reason why they're pumping it up. It's not just because they're trying to help the people in the United States, but they darn well know that there are so many other countries around the world that have debt that's priced in US dollars. And if the market starts crashing, then basically those countries, they're gonna have a big problem paying back that debt. And the US knows that. And if that's the case, if things crash too badly in the United States and they can't pay off their debt, then how are those people, well, first of all, how are they going to pay off that debt if they're forced to do it? They're going to have to sell U.S. assets, which exacerbates the selling in the United States. And if they do that and they're losing and they don't have those assets anymore and there's a transfer of wealth, then those emerging economies that require products from the United States because of their innovation, they won't have the money to actually buy anything. So you're going to see imports to these countries that can't service their debt in US dollars to basically just disappear. And if that was to happen, then you'd have a situation where 
exports from the United States would drop off substantially and that would affect the economy and then recycle back into the market. So you could see how this could be a massive feedback loop that has you know, multiple exponential negative effects on the economy and the stock market simultaneously. So pumping large amounts of money into the system is actually necessary, even though ultimately it will result in inflationary forces at some point in the future. And we did talk about that in the prior episode where it's not immediate because in the short term, when the dollar is very, very high, that's a deflationary force, but it ultimately turns into a reflationary and inflationary force. And we hopefully have to do everything we can so that it doesn't turn into a hyperinflationary, but we're not there yet. But none of that matters when it comes to investing in hard assets, because at the end of the day, gold does well when interest rates are very, very low. So what did the Fed do? They didn't just pump all kinds of money into the system, but they also lowered rates, like 100 basis points, almost down to zero. And when you do that, other countries that have lots of debt with the United States are now able to service that debt better because it's at, the rates are a lot lower. So it just makes it better for everybody. Uh, to have lower rates when you're in the middle of a crisis. Otherwise, you could turn a crisis into a catastrophe. So I get it. I get why they're doing that. So if that's what's happening right now, then that would explain why we have a rally in the market. Now, okay, it's moved out quite a bit. Like you put in a few trillion dollars, but the amount the stock market has gone up is quite a bit more than that. So you've increased the system by many more trillion. So in that sense, are we overvalued? Did we run too far short term for the global macro situation? And like I said in prior podcasts, we've got an industrial revolution like we've never seen. It just It's the second uh, revolution and that's, that's in tech and that's not gonna change. And it's in biotech. People, you know, it's not gonna change that people wanna be connected. And especially in a world where we can't necessarily uh, be, you know, right next to each other at all times, then we'll have to find other means of connecting. And there's a massive tech infrastructure that's necessary for that. There's also all kinds of new technologies that people are accustomed to enjoying and wanting improvements on, and they're, they're hooked on it. And any new improvements, they're buying. There's, you know, companies are behind the curve and have to catch up with other innovators. So you've got redundancy in the system for more people buying to keep up. So at the end of the day, yes, you're gonna have a lot of losers when there's a transition, but there's also lots of buying. So if you could find the companies that are gonna win, no matter who wins the race at the end of it, then those are kind of gonna be your staples in the technology revolution. So for example, in the past, your staples might, might've been basically Kimberly Clark, Johnson and Johnson. Your staples today are going to be your your Amazons, your Googles, your Nvidia's because these things are driving a lot of other industries and regardless of who wins in those industries, they are going to be the net beneficiary. So that would be an example of a strong link. So if you're going to have things in your portfolio, have things like those things and hard assets in your portfolio and then offset it with some kind of ETF that is inversely related. So getting back to that, the ETF that we talked about last time was the HIX. 
And that was the Horizon uh, uh, Beta, which is basically an inverse ETF uh, for the TSX. Just looking at that right now, uh, just zooming in on it, is this like okay let's see how high the market could go you know let's say between now and the 15th okay there's a there's a few dates where it's possible that if some if negative news comes in and certain key levels are broken you should definitely be paying attention because you when when that happens you certainly don't want to be thinking about getting being aggressively long in new names that you don't already have a core position in that are in strong areas so for example in, in the Hicks, I would be focusing, I would like for traders that actually follow these markets, I would be focusing on uh, looking at a, uh, a 400 uh, minute chart on the Hicks. On the 30 minute chart, it's basically telling me that at around sometime after three o'clock in the afternoon uh, on uh, May the 12th, and, and that's actually really important, uh, not, not necessarily just because I'm saying that number is important, but to a lot of traders, a lot of traders know that uh, the markets often turn around on a Tuesday. So if for whatever reason, the market happened to be kind of sideways or didn't just like take off like a rocket to the downside on the TSX, but let's say the TSX kind of just, you know, didn't do much, kind of just nudged around or had a big update, let's say there was a big update on the TSX, then usually what happens, like a lot of times what happens for good trade setups is that the markets, if the market does reverse, especially later in the day on a Tuesday, then a lot of people actually are setting up for a short. So the setup would be this, because we already have a setup for a, short position in the TSX, which would be equivalent to a long position in the inverse, which would be the Hicks. The Hicks is basically saying after three in the afternoon, if we were to kind of progress and get above 563, currently we closed at 556, then that would set us up for a move, the next push up to be around 604. And for people that are observing this action, I would say the optimal time frame to be viewing this short term to be viewing this action in the event that that kind of scenario was to play out, you should be viewing it on a 30 minute price chart. So where each bar represents 30 minutes. But the dominant time frame would be, I would be focusing in on a time frame most traders don't look at, but because it's kind of not your usual time frame, but in the methodology that I put to work, I basically, try to look at what the optimal time frame should be in order to reduce the market noise and that you're actually looking at the right resolution so you could see the actual true picture of the market. And it happens to be the 400 minute chart. So each bar would represent 400 minutes. And that would be a great way to observe action on the Hicks index, the HIX. And based on that, it's also saying somewhere between now and the 15th, be very, very careful. So I would wanna really restrict owning anything, like only owning strong linked equities, equities that really you know, are not in the weak areas in Canada that have been underperforming, especially ones that have been underperforming on this rally, because on the next sell-off in the market and the next rally in the Hicks, which is moves the opposite of the market, 
for Canada uh, would have a uh, a significant you know rally and and as we get to that point and if indeed we do break those points within the next two to five days we're going to have we'll have another segment where in the segment we'll start off talking about those specific points and then from there we may, we'll talk about our key topic for the day but I just want to follow this through because I think it's an important period because most money in the market markets are lost during corrections because people exit too early because they don't know what's happening. So if you're aware what's what could happen, then you don't have to be nervous and then you could just reposition yourself with a little more cash when the market takes its next leg up. But again, I would reposition into the strongest links, not the weakest links. So even if Canada does a big rebound after a bout of volatility at some point after mid-May into June, I would stick to the United States and then the strongest sectors, strongest industry groups and strongest names. For example, one of those names we mentioned in our last episode and that was NVIDIA. And it's also a name that benefits from blockchain and benefits from gaming, benefits from 5G, it benefits from just about anything to do with uh, data and moving data. And that's our new economy. So that is certainly the way to play it. And that would be where to hide. And no matter how low NVIDIA goes, whether it's a 2% correction, 5% correction, 10%, it doesn't matter because all I could say is that come August, there's a whole, and, and possibly as you know, after this, you know, initial volatility event. And as I said, it doesn't have to affect every stock. You could have a situation where uh, these strong stocks explode higher, you know, at points in time, you know, in May, but at, at the end of it, the market tries, you know, a lot of people try to reposition and buy it lower. So you could just be aware that the market could get attacked in the month of May, mid-May and June. And if we come out unscathed, great. Then there's just going to be a wall of opportunity especially from August onward in names like NVIDIA and in names like, um, like Google. And those are names that benefit from data and very strong brands. But just to go out there and just buy it at any time, the problem is if you don't know when volatility could come in, then the worst thing that happens is you see yourself in profit for a few days and then you say, gee, what happened? And then it's like, why did it go down? And then you get out and you maybe take a loss and then you lose your psychological capital. And then finally, when it's time to actually act and go long, you either don't have the necessary capital that you would have rather had, or you may second guess yourself and say, oh, well, it didn't work last time. Therefore, why should I do it this time? So it's smarter sometimes to just stay away, keep some dry powder, and then really pounce when you're in one of those big windows. We had one of those big windows at the low. That was one of the biggest rallies in U.S. history in the shortest period of time. And we're going to have another one of those big windows come the summer. So no matter how high this market goes in the near term, uh, over the next month, if we don't get that volatility event, it's going to be pretty minimal. But the best way to protect yourself against that would be the Hicks, because it is the weakest link in the market. And, and it does have a longer term structure that is more bearish than, any, than most other developed markets for a number of reasons that I mentioned in prior episodes. So that's uh, the Hicks. Now I just wanna just touch on the volatility index because that's an index a lot of people look at as a gauge 
to sense if indeed like um, there's a chance of some kind of uh, correction or some volatility that may come into the market. So basically, I'm going to go to the VIX index and I would suggest that people look at the 400 minute chart again. It just happens to be 400 minute chart is a nice one to look at for the VIX. And that's the VIX, that's the S&P 500 index volatility. And looking at this, it's telling me that come sometime like it's like from now, but you know, we're in that period right now. But like I said, we haven't, you know, sometimes you get those big spikes to the upside on the market just before, and which means a big spike to the downside on the volatility just before it turns. But when it turns, it's like it's in a flash and you, you've missed the trade and it's doubled, right? So, but time is more important than price when it comes to looking at corrections. So looking at the thing, it's like, okay, somewhere between here and the 18th, we're, we're setting up a situation where, okay, does the market's going to go through its, its movements in the short term. Let's, let's spike up a little higher if there's some good news and then consolidate. And then if it's indeed going to correct what you should be looking for on the VIX, you should be looking for basically, especially after the, uh, the 18th, but even anytime, if you see the VIX push above 3450 and stay there for 400 minutes or more, then that's telling you that this, you want to stay out of the way and basically see which equities have performed the best when we come back in mid-June. And the ones that perform the worst, those are probably the ones that are going to underperform on the next cycle. But when I say probably, that's why I'm going to look through it from prediction machine that I'm using which is basically uh, powered by uh, quantum logic, which is a very different form of mathematics that uh, standard computers use. They use classical mathematics and binary logic. It's either on or off. Uh, it's either true or false, but in, in quantum mechanics, things could actually be true and false at the same time. And by making those assumptions, you're allowing for more variability and the ability to not just extrapolate trends forward, but to actually calibrate forward different scenarios and see them before the market actually produces that information. And by knowing those different scenarios, you could reposition your portfolio in a way that actually hedges you based on the mechanics of how traders are looking at the market on different timescales. And when you do that, you're more in line and in tune with the flow of the market instead of trying to go against the grain of the market. And that's kind of what every decision I make every time I'm discussing on this podcast, telling you that, hey, these opportunities look better. It's not necessarily always because they're better companies. I try to find the best companies and the best industry groups with fundamentals behind them, but that's not enough. There's all kinds of companies that are great. And sometimes the better company isn't the one that wins. It's the one that has basically all of these factors on its side where basically you take a position and you're in tune with what other people are doing. And when you aren't, that's when you want to exit. And it just happens to be that if the VIX gets above that, you know, especially let's say about 3450, and that means the low of a bar for of a 400 minute bar, or basically 
the market trades above 34.50 on the VIX index for 400 or more minutes, then that would be absolute confirmation that you want to stay out of the way. That does not mean we're not going to have episodes or we're not going to be providing uh, you know, intelligence that says buy this stock because it really sold off for three or four days and this is one of our long-term uh, strong links, then I would suggest, okay, it's at a level that it's unlikely to go much lower. You know, this is an interesting area to put a sum of a position on and then maybe add the rest of the position after this bout of volatility in June and then really go aggressive in August and then just hold. And kind of you could, you know, hold it as a long-term investor if you're a trader and just know that, that those are the names that are going to be performing well then you, you're the lifetime value of opportunities within that longer term trade will actually work out better for those equities as opposed to equities that may go up once the market goes back up. But they will not produce a lifetime value where lots of new trading opportunities will recycle and form along the way to higher highs. So, and, and when I'm mentioning on the way to higher highs, I'm referring to technology, biotech, gold, silver. I am not referring to uh, higher highs for the uh, TSX. That's why we're actually looking to hedge and use the TSX VIX inverse index as or ETF as a means of actually uh, doing that. So yeah, so those are the two most important things uh, today. There is one piece of information that I came across uh, that was extremely interesting and I thought I got to share it. Uh, with the uh, the listeners here. So this is just interesting. Um, we had an episode a number of weeks back regarding how oil in April has gone, went negative, went almost negative $40. And we talked about that many times. But some people like were talking to me and they were saying, hey, if, if oil is at, at like negative or really underperforming, I mean, right now it's not negative anymore. It could go negative again like in the short term until we get over this disruption. But it's certainly below levels that would make it viable for a lot of these oil companies, you know, to get back to where they'd like to. So in that sense, the question that kept on coming to me is that, well, if oil is so cheap, is that going to sabotage the whole idea of renewable energy and the green energy revolution? Now, when I talk green energy revolution, I do not want, uh, like, because my background is in, in meteorology and I definitely respect climate uh, physics people, I understand where they're coming from on both ends of the debate. I don't want to get in the middle of it. I have my own views and I'm not discussing them. The, but the reason why I'm bringing this up is because there's a difference between the idea of green energy for the purpose of helping the climate and green energy for helping the environment, because there's a big difference. Environment is a much broader issue than just temperatures and extremes. There are other factors, as climate physicists know, that go into why long-term cycles change, and it's not just driven by a single factor. But at the end of the day, pollution, destroying you know, vegetation and all kinds of things, and not using clean energy and green energy for those purposes, that matters. Regardless of the climate debate, you can't argue with the fact that clean energy would be good from a, uh, a you know, ridding the world of uh, extreme pollution. So in that sense, the question is, well, if oil is so cheap, is that, 
like now people are likely going to just go back to oil. They're not going to bother using green energy. So that's going to kind of be like a negative for the green energy revolution. And actually, that's not exactly so. It could actually, sometimes things are the opposite of what you think, just like as we talked in the beginning of the show, that why is the stock market going up when the economy is terrible? Well, it kind of the same thing. How could green energy, how could you make a case that green energy would actually do better in the future with lower oil prices? When we know in the past, lower oil prices tended to lead to more demand. But the world is not the same as it was before. And there is a transition towards technology. But here's the thing. The world's not the same as before because the things that we buy today and the things that we are investing in in the future are run by electrons. Electrons power the new age. All this technology is powered by electrons. And, and even products that aren't technology-based, you can't produce them without electrons because you need electricity. You need to use all these technologies that are providing improvements in efficiency, which are run by electrons. And they are run a lot more efficiently by electrons than they are by oil. Oil's not in the game. And number two, even if oil is in the game, it's all about the cost of producing the end product. Oil is an input to all kinds of products. And it's important to understand that oil is a big component of the chemical industry. And chemicals drive 96 or 97% of every product we touch every day. So in that sense, oil is nothing more than an input to an ultimate manufactured process. So as we all know, we've seen many times in the past where oil moved all around the map, but depending on the different factors of production, those factors of production could be more costly. There could be supply constraints on it. For example, refiners, there could be a limitation in refining capacity that long-term causes a bottleneck and makes it more expensive in certain areas. So there are also situations like we're in right now. We're in a situation right now where you just can't, as I said before, you just can't shut off the oil. Like it's easier to like turn it on and harder to shut it off. But with electrons, yes, uh, it's, a lot, it's a lot easier and, and more economical to, to adjust supply and demand with electrons in an energy grid. And the other part of it is that because demand is going to be increasing in the future on things that are powered by electricity, and because we are able to move those things around in an easier way than just shutting off oil, you're likely to have less disruption, which means industry is more likely to make bigger bets and investments on clean energy because they could see all the different scenarios of what could happen and they could control those factors in a better way. Where with oil, it's not, you can't control it as well. It's very hard as we see today to control it. It's also very toxic. Like, I mean, look what happens. Like when you have too much, too much oil and no, and no demand, you have a situation where you have to store these toxic assets out at sea, which is another environmental potential disaster. So with electricity, it's not like that. And we're getting new technologies that are allowing us to harness that in more important ways. And I do believe that because 
the technology companies are the ones that will have the most money to invest in these future projects. People tend to invest in what they're familiar with and what they know they have control over. And if companies like Tesla and companies like Google and, and, and other companies in the space that are proactive about the future, they're more likely to invest in clean energy than they are in oil. And that's pretty much why I also like technology. That's pretty much what I wanted to talk about today. Hey guys, thanks for listening. So this podcast is for information purposes only. It's not intended to be investment advice. Seek a duly licensed professional for actual investment advice.